one of my favorite hymns of all time and certainly fitting for what we're looking at again this morning. If you would, let's go to Mark chapter 15 and we should finish out chapter 15 this morning and I think we may have uh, two sermons in chapter 16, so three total, and uh, we'll be through with our study of the book of Mark, just uh, shy of two years there. And uh, I hope you've gotten a, as much of a blessing hearing it as I have studying it. So uh, we, we have seen that uh, Mark looks at Jesus as the suffering servant fulfilling uh, Isaiah, and I noticed even as we were singing Hallelujah, What a Savior, in the top left portion of that page of the hymn book, it had the prophecy from Isaiah 53. And that's exactly what this is a fulfillment of, the suffering servant of God dying uh, for the sins of man. Uh, We've been in crucifixion week since chapter 11. And last week we started a little uh, mini-series within chapter 15. And I I think I'm going to finish that out. We just have two parts to it. Um, but we're looking at why the cross matters. And I mentioned last week that if you were to ask the average person on the street if Jesus was really a a historical figure who walked the earth, almost overwhelmingly they would say yes. Do you really believe it's a historical fact that He died on a cross? Well, yeah, He was was crucified by the Romans, sure. Well, what does that mean for you today? And I feel like very few people could answer that question. They wouldn't know. Like, why does the cross even matter? Why is it relevant? And we saw last week in part one of Why the Cross Matters, we looked at the person of the cross. You know, um, crucifixion was a common method of execution among the Romans for common criminals. It was very common. And so why are we still talking about this man who was crucified on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago? Here we are 7,000 miles away from Jerusalem, and we're preaching about it, singing about it, rejoicing over it. Well, it's because of the person of the cross, and that's Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh. God entered into His creation and died for and by His creatures. And so without that, we have no hope, but because of that, we have everything to be hopeful for. In part two of that thought, why the cross matters, I'm really going to focus, whereas we looked at the person of the cross last week, I want to look at the position of the cross this week And really, yes, obviously, the cross is for the lost because Christ died on the cross to save sinners. We're going to look at that a little bit. We looked at it a lot last week. Uh, But I think this is maybe one of the most misunderstood things among Christians, among people that are really saved. They, They just have such a low, limited view of the cross. And I know... I've heard so many times growing up in church, I mean, even different places, uh, that the gospel has almost been turned into nothing uh, but a ticket to heaven. Uh, Believe on Jesus Christ, believe that He died for your sins, and you get to go to heaven. In fact, I've been in services before where the preacher said this about the gospel, and it's all he said. He said that that, uh, you have a choice to make between heaven and hell. And that's all he said. That's, the, that's as deep as he got on the subject. And the problem with that is, yes, it is true. There is a heaven to gain. There is a hell to shun. When you die, you will spend eternity in one of those places. But if you limit the gospel to a choice between heaven and all the splendors and hell and all the torments, well, any fool can make that decision. 
I mean, that's a materialistic message, is it not? Uh, The choice is really between Jesus and the world. Between choosing Him and choosing sin. And so, that's the gospel. But but even then, you, you have to be careful because... Uh, even with that message, some people think, well, I'm, I'm saved, I believe the cross, I'm going to heaven, good deal. But there's so much more to it than just getting to go to heaven. The cross is for saved people. The gospel is for saved people. And so I want to really focus on your position in Jesus Christ because of the cross. What does that mean for the saved people? I believe this is probably... One of the most lacking messages in our churches today is people are saved, sit on a pew, they, they believe they're going to heaven and they have no idea what the cross is doing for them right now. And so, let's look at that. Just for context's sake, I won't preach through this whole text again, but for the context, I'm going to start where we started last week and read to the end of the chapter. But we'll be in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. It says, And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band, and they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one Simon a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place, Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of the skull. And they gave him to drink wine, mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, whatever man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews, And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads, and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple, and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking sit among themselves with the scribes. He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with Him reviled Him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. And now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea 
an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he brought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone under the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph beheld where he laid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, thank you for the truth in this text. I just pray you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, into me a sin and self, uh, make, make preaching clear and powerful, and in a way we can apply it to our lives. Uh, Lord, I pray for Leah, just touch her, be with all that are sick, for uh, Kevin and uh, Lord for uh, Scott, and be with them. Lord, I pray for those that are traveling today, keep them safe. Uh, Lord, just meet with us today and show us where we are, and I pray that we would leave here knowing where we stand in Christ and the cross. And it's in His name we pray these things. Amen. <clears throat> so we're looking at the second part of why the cross matters and what it means to us. Uh, we saw that Christ came as God in the flesh to die in the place of sinners. We talked about uh, penal substitutionary atonement. And by the way, I think probably next Sunday night I'm actually going to bring out the board again and we're going to talk about the atonement and what exactly Jesus accomplished on the cross. But... As I said, the benefits of the cross go further than just getting a person to heaven, and that's what we're going to look at. So, what do we need to know about the believer's position in Christ and in the cross? Well, the first thing that I want you to know is about the permanence of this position. The permanence. It never goes away. It never changes. Our position in Christ never changes. Let's look at uh, chapter 15 and verse 16. And as we read this, I want you to think about the contrast between what Jesus is doing and what it means for us. It says, And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. They called together the whole band, and they clothed him with purple, and platted a crown of thorns on his head, and put it about his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one Simon of Cyrenian who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the palace, I mean, unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of the skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon him, whatever man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. That's 9 o'clock in the morning they, they crucified him. He's been through all these trials, all these beatings, being whipped with a cat of nine tails, uh, having the crown of thorns mashed on his head, carrying the cross, and now they have nailed him and set the cross uh, on Golgotha. And what I love to think about in this text is all the exchanges that we just read. And it's important to understand that historically, the atonement of Christ is known as the great exchange. Uh, he exchanged our sin for His righteousness. And we see this typified in so many things that we just read. Uh, think about this. He was stripped of His robe that we might be clothed in His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 
we see in this text that He was crowned with thorns that we might be crowned with glory. Now, have you ever thought about this? Where did thorns come from? You remember that? It was the curse, wasn't it? That was a part of the curse whenever Adam sinned and part of his curse was that in thorns and thistles he would work by the sweat of his brow. And so the thorns were an effect of sin. Without sin, there were no thorns and thistles. So in a very real way, it pictures him wearing our sin. He became a curse for us. He was crowned with thorns that we might be crowned with glory. He was mocked that we might be honored. He was hated that we might be loved. He was forsaken by God the Father that we could be accepted of God. He died that we might live. He was crucified that we might go free. And talking about how He died that we might live, I mean, some of these things may seem so simple and then sometimes they just hit you all of a sudden, they become real to you. But I had this truth, I mean, really, really become real to me. And I've, I've preached several funerals. I've had loved ones pass away. I've, I've been in that scene. I've, but I've never had it click with me like it did a few months ago when my grandmother died. And we're standing out there. Man, it's a beautiful, gorgeous day, mid-70s, light breeze. And we're out there in the middle of nowhere in this, at this little cemetery. And, you know, you go to any cemetery, you walk through it, you can see the names and the the day they were born and the day they died. And, you know, every time you pass a cemetery, it's evidence that the wages of sin is death. It's evidence that this is a sin-cursed world. Uh, but as I was standing there at the graveside of my grandmother and I was saying a few words and I was, I was beginning to pray and it just hit me. You know, when, when it comes time for our death, we have no power in the day of death. No man has power in the day of death. No woman uh, can stay the power of death. But the Lord willingly entered into our death. He entered into our death that we could live forever. You say, well, people still die. Well, yes, that's true, but understand this. There's actually two deaths. The word death literally means separation. The first death is when our soul separates from our body. And the second death is when people are cast into the lake of fire, separated from God's love forever. And even in the first death, although we may die, the effects of that death will be completely erased because one of these days, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to raise up our dead body. (laughs) It's going to meet back up with our souls and we're going to have a glorified body for all eternity. So even even death for us is not a loss. It's not. It's not the end game. He's completely defeated death. And so we see all of these exchanges in what we just read in this text. And here is what we must understand. This is what we have to get about our position in Christ. It's not about what we do. It's about who we are in Christ, and that never changes. Now think about this. If you're saved today, if you're a child of God, this is who you are. In Christ, we are saved from our sin. We're forgiven. We're children of God. We are the bride of Christ. We are loved by God. We are accepted by God. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, an heir, uh, you know, when somebody dies and they leave an inheritance, they have heirs in their will that receive the inheritance. And in a very real illustration, 
Uh, I was adopted by my parents, but they had a natural-born daughter uh, not too terribly long after I was adopted. We're both Vons. We both have the same last name. We both grew up in the same house. And even though I was adopted and she was natural-born, we're, we're both in the will. We're, when, when God sees, when God the Father sees Christ, He sees us and vice versa. There's, isn't that amazing? That, the, that God looks at us as His adopted children in the same way that He looks at Jesus Christ. That's an unimaginable thought. And when He gets glorified, we'll get to be glorified and reign with Him as well. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're righteous. And not just righteous. We are the righteousness of God, not because of what we do, but because we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can even make it to heaven. And in that sense, God looks at us, even though we do still sin and we do wrong. God sees us as sinless. That's why our position in Christ never changes. Uh, We are pure. We are redeemed. This is our position. This is who we are. The position never changes. Change. Y'all, y'all hear me say that a hundred times. I want you to get this. And this is how God sees us because of Christ. Now, this is very important to get this. There is a difference between our position and our person. Or as somebody has said, there's a difference between our standing and our state. And our position, our standing before God, we are all these things that I just mentioned. Those things never change. But in our person... We are becoming these things. We're not there yet. But even if we mess up in our person, even if we mess up in our state, our position, our standing with God never changes. This is why we can't lose our salvation. And these are our benefits in Christ. Uh, As a Christian, we are no longer under the wrath of God for sin. Jesus Christ answered for that. He dealt with that at the cross. And understand this, I mentioned this last week. But for the lost sinner... He is under the wrath of God as the righteous judge. And God will judge and punish sinners. But as saved children of God, we're no longer under the wrath of God for sin. He will never, uh, we will never go before a courtroom of God and answer for our sin. He will not punish us as a judge, but when we mess up, He will discipline us as a father. There's a big difference. Judges punish, fathers discipline. And so there's a difference between those two things. And, and people hear me say these things and they say, well, you just believe in loose living or, or you just believe that, uh, you know, and once saved, always saved and uh, you know you got your ticket punched to heaven so you can live like you want to and everything. Nobody ever said a word about that. That is a false assumption from somebody who does not understand the gospel. I've mentioned before that several years ago <laughs> I was driving through the state of Texas and a truck passed me on the interstate And it had a bumper sticker that said, Jesus paid for our sin, let's get our money's worth. If you believe that, you need to repent. You're not even saved. The grace is not an excuse for sin, and it's not a reason for cheap living. But understand, if if a person thinks that the only reason that anybody would ever want to serve God is a terrifying fear of hell, they've missed the whole point. If you want to serve God just because you want to stay out of hell, you miss the whole thing. Listen, I don't work to be saved. I don't work to keep my salvation. I don't work to you know, keep in good standing with God. Jesus Christ already did that. I am saved. I'll never feel the flames of hell. And because of that, out of a grateful heart, in love with Jesus Christ, I want to serve Him. 
That's the difference. And so to say that, you know, that's a, a cheap grace or cheap way, that's just not true. We're not under the wrath of God anymore. Our, our position with God never changes. If you, had a, if you have a bad day, if you mess up, yes, in your, in your state, in your person, you may have messed up. But over here in your position, guess what? You're still saved. You're still a child of God. You're still the bride of Christ. You're still righteous. You're still all of these things. I've been saved since 1999. And although there's been times in my life where I failed God, where I've messed up, where I've done wrong in my person, for not one second since that day that the Lord Jesus Christ saved me, not one second have I ever not been in my position, righteous, holy, saved, a child of God, bride of Christ. We're always going to be those things for the saved. That's the permanence of our position. But the second thing that I want you to know concerning our position in Christ and the cross is the preciousness of our position. The word precious, it means valuable. If, if you have a diamond ring, it's, it's expensive, it's valuable because of its rarity. In Old English, uh, that's known as precious. And so, um, look at, let, let's skip over to verse 33. <coughs> Mark chapter 15, verse 33. It says, And when the sixth hour was come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar, and put it on a reed and gave to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. As I mentioned, nobody took his life from him. He willingly laid it down. Uh, but I absolutely love a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Of course, Charles Spurgeon, one of the most uh, printed uh, preachers in history. Uh, man, he said a lot of good things, but at the end of the day, he said, when you, when you boil my theology down, he said, my theology can be summed up in four words. Christ died for me. Christ died for our personal sin. He died in our place. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Uh, this gives us incredible value and worth as a person. And every, listen, this is so important. If y'all don't get anything else I say, get, get the next five minutes of this message. Because honestly, this breaks my heart probably more than anything that I've ever seen in the ministry. Certain, uh, certainly if you go by quantity and the, and the amount of people that don't get this. It's so amazing to me how many people can... They can maybe they're honestly saved. They really know they know the Lord. They've been saved, and yet they have no joy. There's no peace. They don't understand their purpose, and so it's kind of like they know they're saved and they kind of do their churchy thing. But it, it's kind of on the back burner. But what really gets their passion is the things they pursue to try to obtain significance and security in this life. It's like yeah, I'm saved and Jesus is over here, but it's like their whole life. And their whole purpose consists of Jesus and. I'm saved, but, but I need this career to satisfy me, to, to give me value and worth as a person. Uh, I, I need to, to get some kind of uh, fame or some kind of 
wealth or, or some kind of athletic accomplishments or uh, financial success or college degrees or, you know, we can go down the line and it's, it's like Jesus and. And it's to a point where people feel like if they don't get these things, then they have no worth or value as a person. They have totally missed the purpose of the cross and they've missed their position in Christ. Uh, everyone in this world is striving for significance and security. But listen, if you're in Christ, you've already got those things. You've already got those things. Uh, if you don't understand that your value as a person comes from who you are in Christ and His cross, you will kill yourself trying to find value in something or someone else. That's called idolatry. That's called idolatry. And <clears throat> let me just break it down to you, and I know this is, this is going to really be some health and wealth shouting preaching here. Y'all just get ready. When it comes to the things that people really strive for to find real meaning in life, let me just lay this out for you. Uh, when it comes to your uh, careers, um, guess what? One of these days you're going to retire or you're going to die, and the next day somebody's going to replace you. We feeling good? There's no eternal value. Thank God for a good career. Thank God for hard work. Thank God for all that. Those are good things that make lousy gods. Um, I got news for you. Good looks deteriorate with age. Amen. It's all going to get us one of these days. So if you're looking for your value and your worth in that, clock's ticking, baby. You can't find your value in those things. They're temporal. They have, they have no lasting value. Uh, when we think about uh, athletic ability, uh, guess what? You're going to get old and your body's going to wear out. Your window's very short. And you think about some of the greatest athletes that have ever lived. I think about uh, Mike Tyson in boxing. How, how long really was his career? I mean, really. Uh, what, seven, eight years before he started going downhill? And then it was like he was losing every time he fought. Um, you know, you, you think about uh, some of these UFC fighters or maybe uh, basketball players or football players. How long really? And then what do they have? What are they left with? A broken body from years of dedication. Uh, time is very short. If you're looking for your value in your relationships, let me tell you this, people's going to hurt you. People will hurt you. They're going to do you wrong. And how are you going to find your value and worth in those people? I would say a huge percentage of the people that I've counseled over the years, I would say specifically, but not limited to, the context of marriage. And the problem so many times is that you're dealing with one or both of these parties are insecure. And they so desperately need and, and feel like they need to find their value in the love and the affirmation of their spouse that they have put their spouse on such a pedestal that there's no way they can satisfy that need within them. Your, your spouse, your children... Um, your relationships, your brothers, your sisters, whatever relationships you hold dear, they're good things. Thank God for the relationships He's given us. The people in your life make lousy gods. They're going to hurt you. Whether they mean to or not, they're going to disappoint you. They're going to let you down. And one thing I can promise you, if you're married, you're married to a sinner. If you have children, your children are sinners. Uh, if you have brothers and sisters, they're sinners. They're going to let you down. You're going to let other people down. 
And, and if you're looking, listen, if you look for your affirmation, if you look for your self-worth and your value in the opinions of other people, you're going to live a miserable, miserable life. Because I can't control what other people think about me. I can't do that. I can't do that as a husband. I can't do it as a father. I can't do it as a pastor. So if I'm looking at what the church congregation really thinks about me, I'm going to be miserable because guess what? If I do something to try to please group B, then group A is going to be mad at me. And if I try to please group A, then group B is going to be mad at me. And if I try to please both at the same time, everybody's going to be mad at me. See, you can't please people all the time, but you can please God through Jesus Christ. Amen. So you might as well just sell out to pleasing Him Amen. and being obedient to Him. When it comes to my children, listen, I have, I have counseled people before who had children that were kind of getting up in age, they were getting to that young adult life, and it was becoming apparent, at least for that time in their life, their children were not turning out like they wanted them to. They had no visible love for the Lord, they have... They have no desire to serve God. There's no fruit there. And the parents are devastated, not just because they're worried about their children. It goes, it goes greater than that. It's higher than that. They're looking for their significance of their parenting. They're looking for a stamp of approval on their good parenting skills and the behavior of their children. You cannot do that. I have resolved within myself, within my heart, that by the grace of God, I'm going to do everything I can to try to raise my children and the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but I cannot be held responsible for their actions as adults. That, that's, a, that's a burden that I cannot bear. Uh, everybody has decisions to make. There's no home that's perfect. I'm sure that I could find, uh, or I, let me put it this way, I'm sure they could find some better parents, and I'm sure they can find some worse ones, but ultimately they're going to have to make the decision to repent and follow the Lord Jesus Christ in their life. I can't be held responsible for that. If you're doing your best at work and you're, you're, what you do, you're doing it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men, you cannot look for affirmation in your bosses and your co-workers. You can't do that. You have to walk around in confidence every day knowing about your position in Christ. You're loved. You're a child of God. You're accepted. You're the bride of Christ. You have a home in heaven. And you're doing everything you can to please the Lord. If it hair lips the nation, that's all you have to worry about. But we're in an age where everybody, everybody wants to be liked. Who doesn't want to be liked? But it's become a God to so many people. I mean, even on a church-wide level, how many churches, so-called churches have capitulated to this liberal, anti-Christian agenda that we see sweeping across? All, all for the sake of being liked. Well, if they don't like you, then you can't minister to them. Friend, look at what they did to Jesus. Look at what they did to the apostles. They crucified Peter upside down. They sure liked him. Look at what they did to Paul. They cut his head off. You'll never see anywhere in the gospel where God commands us to get people to like us so much that we'll just like them all the way to heaven. You won't, you won't find that anywhere. In fact... Being right with God many times has meant to be in trouble with man. It's all in who you're serving. Who really is your God? Who sits upon the throne of your heart? Because if you're looking for these things to satisfy, you're going to be disappointed. 
If you're thinking about fame, if, if any of us ever happen to achieve any kind of real fame, let me tell you this. The glory of man fades like a flower. A couple of years ago, when we went to Los Angeles uh, for one of Leah's medical trips, uh, we had gotten out of one of her treatments, and she was really wanting to see the Hollywood stars. This hospital is like a block from the Hollywood stars that are in the sidewalk, you know. And so we went walking down the sidewalk looking at all these names of movie stars that are in this sidewalk. And you know what I noticed? And I mean, I'm, I admit I'm not a, a super cultured guy, but I'm not a gump either. And what I found is that I only recognize maybe one name out of about every five. Maybe one out of five. I would I'll say, oh, I, I, recognize, I recognize them. Oh, yeah, they were in that movie. I, I, know, I remember that. But like most of them, I was like, who? What? And I mean, some of those stars have been on there for decades. They're, they're really old. They've been there a long time. A lot of those stars are dead now. And, you know, when they finally got to that place, when they finally had made it to the point where they get to have their name etched in the side, well, they probably thought they had done something. They never thought in their mind there was going to be a backwoods pastor from Alabama that walked along the sidewalk decades later and said, Who is that? I never heard of them. Because the glory of man fades as a flower. They got everything, but they got nothing. And by the way, when the Lord shows up and releases His judgment on this world, all that stuff's going to melt anyway. It's not going to be there. We're not going to be walking around in the millennial kingdom going, Who was that? We're not even going to see it. It's not going to be there. And so, if you're looking to these things, you're going to be disappointed. We're no longer living life in pursuit of our value and worth because we already have those things in Christ. And I find that the mistake that I think so many Christians make, especially in this society where, you know, we got the whole American dream mentality and Man, you can, if you want it, you can have it. If you can believe it, you can achieve it. And man, we just go, go, go and achieve and chase after. Um, one thing that I think Christians can definitely be guilty of, years ago, I used to work with a man. Uh, he was from India, but he had moved here. His name was Shajan. And Shajan had gotten saved and become a Christian, and he was trying to build up deputation because he wanted to go back to his home country of India and give them the gospel. And he said that one of the most difficult things about witnessing to Hindus is the fact that they make a god out of everything. They have thousands and thousands of gods. And what he found is, when he would go back to his country and share the gospel, the, the response was overwhelmingly positive. They're like, yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, how, how do I make Jesus my God? And, you know, they seem to say all the right things and do all the right things. And it almost seemed too easy. And then he realized what happened. They had not repented of those other gods. They had just added Jesus to their list of gods. I say, wow, we do the same thing here in America. Oh yeah, we have Jesus, we're saved, we do the church thing. But over here, uh, career first, relationships, family, fame, athletics, all of these things, and we just add Jesus to it. And I, I tell you what, if that's your mentality, I would really even check up on my salvation. I'm not saying a young Christian couldn't do that. I'm not saying we hadn't all been guilty of it at some point in time. But if that's their everyday mentality, that's a scary thing. That's a scary thing. <clears throat> and so, I love what Dr. Larry Crabb said. He said, self-acceptance for so many people depends upon performance. What a tragedy 
In light of the fact that Christ's death provided God with a basis for accepting us in spite of our performance. If we understand our foundation and who we are in Christ, we don't have to be devastated by life. Listen, if you get fired from your career, hey, you might hate it, but it doesn't determine your value. And you can chalk it up to, well, this is just God's will for my life. If you don't make the team or you lose a game, it doesn't diminish your value one iota. You're a winner in Jesus Christ. If people treat you badly in relationships, it hurts, but it doesn't diminish your value. You're still a child of God and you're loved by God. If your health or your looks fade with age, you're still the bride of Christ and you're beautiful. When we bury our saved loved ones, it's not goodbye, it's just see you later. We don't have to bury our God. The grave was only able to hold Him for three days anyway. If you're poor, if you struggle financially, it's hard. But guess what? You're still rich in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure the world would hear things like this. And they would say, wow, that, that sounds real special. That sounds like tokenism. But the thing is, it's not tokenism at all. Because what could possibly be bigger than the God of the universe entering into creation and into human flesh, dying for my sin and being raised from the dead three days later, what could possibly be bigger than that? Absolutely nothing if you really believe it. If you really believe it. Because belief determines behavior. And if you really buy into the cross and what it means for us, everything else in life is just a cherry on top. It's not the Sunday. I mean, I tell you the way that some people go about their Christian life, they, they just minimalize God and Jesus so much that it's, it's almost like going to Sonic and saying, yeah, I'll, I have a strawberry Sunday. Hold the Sunday. Uh, excuse me, what? You want to what? I want a strawberry Sunday. Hold the Sunday. I'll, I'll just take the cherry. Just, just, give, just put a cherry in a cup. I'll just take it. Or, or, or having a, a million dollars in a brown paper sack and, and dumping the million dollars into the garbage can and running around saying, yeah, I got a brown paper sack. Look at me. That's what we've done. We have replaced the valuable for the invaluable. And, and it, our focus should not be on the gifts. It should be on the giver. Our position in Christ and His cross is precious. And it gives us ultimate value and worth. And if we understand that, we don't have to be devastated by the things that come our way. We don't have to find our value in anything else when we understand who we are in Christ. We don't have to fear death. I mean, for the child of God, death is only an escort home. So we see the preciousness of our position in Christ. Thirdly and lastly, I'm coming in for a landing here. Uh, Verse 38, I want to talk about the power of our position. Verse 38, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less and Joseph and Salome, and who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. And now when the even was come, because it was a preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, 
came and went boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone under the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph beheld where he was laid. Now, this is really amazing to me because, you know, you look at this and you could probably say, well, you know, the Lord might have could have let this out and it would have had a huge impact on the text. The Lord made it a point to call out the women who had risked their life to get as close to the cross as they could get. And I find this kind of funny, kind of embarrassing. But uh, James wasn't there, but his mother was there. These women were risking their life. You don't, you don't find anywhere where the disciples were anywhere near the cross at all. And yet these women, if they had been recognized for being followers of Jesus, it could have cost their life. And yet here they are fearlessly looking on. There's a certain power here. And, you know, women in that day certainly, uh, there was a certain caste system. And, you know, women were the lower echelon. And, you know, a lot of times their testimony wouldn't mean as much in a court of law. And, uh, you know, uh, many times a woman would have to have more witnesses uh, than just her word. And so... Uh, this is amazing to me where God puts this uh, in the pages of Holy Writ. There's a power here. And when it speaks of the tearing of the temple veil, understand this gives us access to God. Uh, you know, people, <coughs> they used to say that uh, the temple, the Holy of Holies, was the place where God dwelled. And only the priests could go in there once a year to offer sacrifices, but... The temple veil was eight inches uh, thick. I mean, it was hand-sewn. It was very thick. It was about 30 feet tall. And there's no way that anybody could have physically torn that veil. And what's interesting is it was torn from the top to the bottom, from God to man. He was breaking open that door. And now for the saved, we can anytime, anywhere, we don't have to be in Jerusalem. We don't have to be in a church house. Anytime, anywhere, we can fall on our knees and go to God through Jesus Christ in prayer. That's the access point. But this gives us power. It gave these women power. Um, now, when you understand who you are in Christ, you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in fear of death. And when you understand this, you no longer have to be crippled by fear, resentment, or anxiety. I'm going to close with this. came across another quote by Larry Crabb. Listen to this. Talking about the things that even saved people struggle with and they don't have to. Listen to this. Uh, Dr. Crabb says... If I believe that all I need is God and what He chooses to provide, I will not experience guilt, resentment, or anxiety. Guilt comes from believing that what God provides is not enough and then going outside of God's will to secure what He has not provided. Resentment comes from believing that my needs are threatened by something which He has allowed to happen to me. Anxiety is the fear that something I need will not be provided. Think about that. The reason we suffer so much is because we don't trust Him enough. Um, in Christ, the weak become strong. The worthless become worthy. Sinners become saints. Spiritual orphans become children of God. Our position in Christ and His cross changes everything. And our position as believers in Christ is permanent. It never changes. It's precious 
It gives us infinite value and worth. It's powerful. It makes the weak strong. So I would, I would close by asking just two questions. First of all, do you know the Lord? Have you passed from death unto life? Do you know Jesus Christ in repentance and faith? And if so, are you taking comfort in your position? Do you realize who you are in Jesus Christ? The world doesn't get to define who you are. Jesus Christ already has. And every behavior, every belief, everything that gives us value goes back to the cross. Listen, without the cross, nothing we do matters. So what if you get an amazing career? So what if you make a lot of money? So what if you achieve all your goals and dreams in life? One of these days you will die. And somebody else is going to be fighting over everything you achieved in life. Without the cross, nothing matters. But because of the cross, everything does. Do you know who you are in Jesus Christ? Would you stand as she comes?